Christian, do you have a favorite passage of Scripture? The 23rd Psalm, perhaps? Or Revelation 21 to 22? Perhaps John's 18 verse prologue? I love Romans 9, 10, and 11. I love the God who breathed out those chapters and who established the salvation truths they speak to. And I'm grateful to God for this opportunity to better understand this portion of his holy word with my new city, brothers and sisters, this morning. Beloved, this is an exciting, it's it's a glorious text. There's a degree of complexity to it. I mean, you have the mother of all handouts, I think, with you there. But uh, there's a degree of complexity, so we'll need to pay close attention. Paul's argumentation is quite tight. But God will reward our careful study of his word. And and just by way of reminder, the reason why we're looking at Romans 9, 10, and 11 as a separate unit is because I, I want us connecting what we're reading here in these three chapters with the missionary evangelism situation we read about in the book of Acts. That's, this is how I want to close off that Acts sermon series. Uh, I want to put Paul's missionary journeys and what he encounters in city after city of Jews rejecting the gospel and Gentiles believing the gospel into the framework of God's eternal salvation plan. It's essential That as God's new covenant people, we get that. Uh, That as Christian Gentiles, we get that. We understand that. Because by the time we come to uh, Acts' conclusion in chapter 28, it appears at first blush that God's covenantal promises to Israel have failed. Utterly failed. It appears that God has reneged on his promises to the patriarch Abraham. The grave, hell, and the devil are all vanquished foes because Jesus the Messiah died for the sins of his people and he was raised all in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. But by and large, Israel doesn't believe it. Most Jews, even today, they stumble over Jesus and the shame of his scandalous cross. And that Jewish unbelief is something that we need to be able to reconcile with our understanding of Old Testament Scripture. We need to be able to reconcile Israel's unbelief in the gospel of Jesus the Messiah and her exclusion, by and large, from the people of the New Covenant with all the promises that God made to Abraham and the nation of Israel. God's glory is on the line here. Uh, Nothing less than God's integrity... His righteousness, his honesty, his goodness, and sovereignty are at stake. We need to ask, is God faithful to his promises? As a new covenant Christian, I certainly hope so. Well, what about the old covenant people of God? That's why this is so important. And if he is faithful, then how has it come to this? Make make no mistake, loved ones. These chapters are not lofty, abstract theology for the theological eggheads. I think Romans 9 through 11 sort of has that reputation. I think the whole book of Romans has that reputation. This is God's eternal salvation plan for saving all of his people from their sin throughout all of human history. This is all about the saving gospel, Romans 9 to 11. This is the theological call 
God intends for us to use to fuel the fire of our adoration and worship of him. Worship that flows from a knowledge of God as sovereign and full of grace and love and mercy who providentially rules over all things to conform to the end that he designed. So friend, if you're visiting us this morning, or if you've missed one of the sermons in our Romans 9 to 11 series, or if you're here, you've been here every single week, meeting out in the park or online, whatever it might be, but but some of the details are still fuzzy around the edges. Uh, Let me just provide a very quick recap. What we saw last time in Romans chapter 10 was that first century Israel had ample opportunity to repent and believe the gospel. Preachers were indeed sent to Israel. Preachers preached the gospel to Israel and Israel heard the preaching. But due to their obstinate disobedience, Israel did not believe the gospel. Most Jews 2,000 years ago who sat under the preaching of the gospel rejected the message of Christ. And that same rejection was prophesied actually in Old Testament scripture. We looked at that. But even in the face of deliberate, stubborn disbelief and covenantal unfaithfulness, because that's what it was, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, the corporate entity of Israel, the entire nation. God has not rejected Jews. How do we know that? Because there's a small remnant of new covenant Jewish Christians chosen by grace, and there has been for these 2,000 years. And that fact is evidence of God's gracious, present faithfulness to the nation of Israel. Uh, God is presently fulfilling his covenantal promises to the Jewish patriarchs by saving some Israelites, some Jews. Paul summarized the situation for us in chapter 11, verse 7. The preaching of the gospel has now divided Israel into two groups. There's there's a minority, there's the remnant who have obtained salvation, and the majority who have been hardened. All right then, what about Israel's future? Will the beneficiaries of God's covenant promises to Israel permanently be merely a remnant within Israel? No, at some point in the future... Israel's hardening will be removed and the present tiny remnant of Jewish Christians will be expanded to include a much greater number of Jews obedient to the gospel. As Paul puts it in chapter 11, verse 26, the much debated text that we're going to be considering today for the first time, all Israel will be saved, which means Israel's rejection of the gospel is neither total nor final. In fact, Israel's reconciliation with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ will trigger the climactic end of salvation history, the return of Jesus and the final resurrection. New City, the Apostle Paul, who is himself a Jew, he wants the church to understand that this this current situation, a state of affair that's now lasted almost two millennia, will one day change. And so the church of Jesus, the Messiah, awaits the day when Israel's unbelief and rejection will be replaced by faith and acceptance. We await the day when the natural branches will be grafted into the olive tree of the people of God once again. 
which means as the new covenant people of God, the church needs to be looking at Jews and our relationship toward Jews and the promises God made to the Jewish patriarchs and our own salvation in the light of those patriarchal promises, the Jewish rejection of the gospel, the future full inclusion of Israel, and our own contrary-to-nature Gentile engrafting into the family of God regarding all those things, brothers and sisters, God wants us to have a biblical perspective. That's why he's given us Romans 9, 10, and 11, which is something that I think is sorely, sorely lacking in the church today. And so what this remaining section of Romans 11 is concerned with, where it warns and chastises Gentile Christians, is boasting in our inclusion in the people of God due to our profound ignorance of salvation history and the grace of God. Romans commentator par excellence, in my opinion, Doug Moo, writes this. Here surfaces what is probably one of the basic purposes of the letter to the Romans. Also, I hope I have your full attention now. Gentiles have become the majority in the church in Rome, as well as the church at large. They are tempted to take undue pride in their new position, even to the extent of thinking they have now replaced the Jews in God's plan. Paul disabuses them of this notion, showing that by an act of sheer grace, they have been added to Israel. (laughs) Brothers and sisters in Christ, our spiritual heritage is a Jewish heritage. Do you know that? Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus the Messiah become part of the community of salvation founded upon God's promises to the Jewish patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand that, and the Bible makes a whole lot more sense. All sorts of things just fall into place. God has not made a transition from one people to another. The church has not replaced Israel. There is an historical continuity in the people of God. And as a spiritual entity, Israel is organically connected to the church. And as an ethnic entity, as we've already seen in chapter 11, verses 1 to 2, Jews continue to exist as the object of God's care and attention. This is how Paul begins. Look at chapter 11, verse 16. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy or set apart for special attention, because that's what holiness can mean. It doesn't always mean moral purity. If the first part of the dough is holy, consecrated, set apart for special attention, then so is the whole batch. In the same way, if the root is holy, so are the branches. That is, if the root is consecrated, if the root is set apart for special attention, then the branches are too. And what this means, of course, is that God's election of the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that election sanctifies Israel as a whole. It sets them apart from the nations. 
they are dedicated as a special possession of God. And that didn't stop 2,000 years ago when Jews started rejecting Jesus as the Christ. Uh, which, okay, please hear me, which isn't to say every person in Israel is or will be saved, but they are in a special relationship to God. Why is that? Because at the beginning of Israel's history, God chose and set apart for himself Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. Those men were singled out by God and made his own special possession and devoted to him in the obedience of covenantal faithfulness. He was their God. They were his people. They were the, the dough offered as first fruits. They were the roots. The patriarchs were the roots. And Paul's confidence that one day all Israel will be saved in verse 26 of this chapter his confidence that a future generation of Jews will turn to Jesus Christ and believe in massive numbers is implied in that original election and covenant, covenant commitment God made to Israel at the beginning. We're going to unpack that in a second. But first, Paul uses this metaphor of root and branches to chastise and to warn Gentile Christians against pride, against spiritual pride. And he does this very famously by comparing the people of God, both Jew and Gentile, to an olive tree. And as you can see in your bulletin, Paul has three pastoral goals in the use of this metaphor. Number one, this metaphor of the olive tree should instill godly fear in Gentile Christians against being spiritually arrogant and presumptuous and looking down on or despising Israel. This is its primary point of warning. It should instill godly fear in Gentile Christians against being arrogant and presumptuous since we enjoy God's spiritual blessings only through the Jews and solely on the basis of God's grace, not because we earned them. Look at verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off, that is, if non-Christian Jewish branches have been broken off the olive tree of the people of God, and you, Christian Gentiles, though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others, that is, a grafted in as a Gentile shoot among Jewish believers in Jesus the Messiah, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. Paul's telling the Roman Christians, the Roman Gentiles, get your salvation history right, guys. Go read the book of Genesis again. Start putting the storyline of the Bible together. You're way out of sequence. Christian Gentiles are part of Israel's spiritual heritage. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I may be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. 
Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And there we, we just read a big chunk of scripture, a big chunk of text warning us against apostasy. Right? Of turning away from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Christian, hear the apostles' words. God is under no obligation to spare you if you do not persevere in faith. If God so judged Jews who have a natural connection to the tree and to its sustaining root, God will surely judge those who have been grafted in as alien branches, which is us, by the way. We're the alien branches. So what do you think? Maybe we ought to change the name of our church from New City Baptist to the Contrary to Nature Engrafted Wild Olive Shoot Church. I mean, it's a real mouthful, right? But it's, it's theological, and it will keep, certainly keep us humble. <laughs> that would be in line perfectly with God's sovereign salvation plan. The Contrary to Nature Engrafted Wild Olive Shoot Church. No one Gentile Christian can presume upon God's grace and imagine that the blessings of salvation will be theirs regardless of their continuance in the faith. Unbelieving Jews made that same mistake, didn't they? We're Jews. We're descendants of Abraham. We're in a covenant relationship with God. That's, that's ours by rights. And John the Baptist and, and Jesus and the Apostle Paul all warned and rebuked them for that kind of outlook. And now, Paul is chastising Gentiles for making the same ethnocentric mistake and for throwing God's grace under the bus. So what's the lesson? Don't be proud, Gentile Christian, for being engrafted, contrary to nature, into the people of God. That's the main takeaway from this metaphor. Gentile Christians are part of Israel's spiritual heritage, so we must not look down on or despise Israel, which, please hear me on this, which doesn't, doesn't mean we have to have a picture of Benjamin Netanyahu uh, on our living room wall or wherever is the PM now, nor must we be uh, anti-Palestinian or even pro-Israel in our, in our politics. That has nothing to do with this, but it does mean we understand that our very spiritual existence as Gentile Christians depends on our partaking of the tree whose nourishing roots are planted in the soil of the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and God's promises to the patriarchs as they are fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah and to which, therefore, Jews naturally belong. We do well to keep the continuity and the flow and the historical order of God's redemption plan clearly in mind. As verse 24 tells us, we Gentiles were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated Jewish olive tree. That being the case, any boasting on our part for being included in the people of God or any looking down our spiritual noses at Jews is out of place. We don't know our Bibles. What did God prophesy to Israel in the Old Testament? I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. I was found by those who did not seek me. 
I have revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. In the very place where it is said of them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. See, New City, that is our spiritual pedigree right there. We're, we're the new kids on the block, wallowing in darkness and pagan ignorance until the Lord saved us by his electing grace. Get the history, the salvation history, right. Secondly, this metaphor of the olive tree should instill hope regarding the future of ethnic Israel because God has the power to graft them in again. Chapter 11, verse 23. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. Ah, that is, that is such a beautiful, vivid illustration I think of God's grace and love in that verse. Christian, do you have Jewish friends? Do you have Jewish neighbors, Jewish co-workers who don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Perhaps you've evangelized them nine ways from Sunday, yet still they resist. I say to you, keep at it. Keep at it, persevere, And if you never have evangelized your Jewish friends and neighbors and and colleagues, start. Start today. Uh, Bring this text to mind as you pray for them. As you do all you can, God's grace assisting you to make them envious of the covenantal blessings that you enjoy. These verses, they give real hope. They tell us God desires to save his people. They give us a divine perspective on the situation, which may seem hopeless to our human eyes. Hear the word of the Lord. God is able to graft the original Jewish branches back into the olive tree. They only need to believe the gospel. And and that is a very easy, natural bit of botanical surgery. Much more natural, in fact, than wild Gentile olive shoots being grafted in contrary to nature. That's the whole purpose of this metaphor. That's what he's saying. And and this is the third, I think, pastoral implication of Paul's metaphor. Verse 24 exalts God's sovereign grace by highlighting a surprising turn in God's salvation historical plan, which is contrary to nature, namely his plan to include many Gentiles as part of the people of God. That might be a brain twister, but that's actually what it's saying, to include many Gentiles. Verse 24, after all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will those natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And now, I think with verse 25, we come to the the interpretive Mount Everest of the text. Let's just take this slow. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Now, as some of you may know, at one time in my life, I wanted to be a homicide detective. And to that end, before dropping out ingloriously in my first semester at university in a haze of drugs and alcohol, I majored, ironically, in criminology at the University of Ottawa. I I love being a pastor, and I wouldn't change this for anything, but... I'm, I'm convinced I would, I would still enjoy being a cop. 
Uh, and if a homicide detective were ever to become a member at New City, just look at it. I'm just going to so selfishly ingratiate myself with that person. I want to hear all their cool cop stories. And maybe one day, they'll take me out on a ride-along. And all my, all my dreams will be fulfilled. <laughs> but, but I think I became interested in being a homicide detective because when I was a kid, I read a lot of mysteries. Sherlock Holmes, The Hardy Boys, Encyclopedia Brown, Agatha Christie. Uh, and my favorite kind of mystery was the kind where, and still to this day, is where the reader can track along uh, with the detective. Uh, the kind of story where, in theory, if you're observant, and if you have a deductive sort of mind, then you could actually solve the crime too, in, in theory. So you could say, Colonel Higginbottoms, he's the murderer. And that's how we think of the word mystery today, isn't it? Kind of in that Sherlockian sense. Now, the Apostle Paul, he uses the word mystery 21 times in his writings. It's a very important biblical concept, but he never, ever uses the word in that same sense, the Sherlockian sense. Paul never speaks of a mystery that can be solved by using our powers of deduction. If you look at your handout, you can see the definition at the very top, mystery definition. Revelation from God that the Old Testament did not clearly reveal but has now been clearly revealed in Jesus Christ, particularly the saving salvation purposes of God now affected in Jesus and summed up in the gospel itself. And there's a whole list of references. And what the mystery Paul's talking about in verse 25 is, I'm going to explain that in a second. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. You see his theme again? Don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited, Gentiles. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, it goes without saying, almost every word in this verse is hotly debated and disputed. And for those who are theologically curious, I I sent out a supplement in the announcement email this week that looked in depth at verse 26. It's taken from an old sermon of mine, so you you can refer to that if you want, but with monstrous impertinence. I'm not going to explain or defend my position today. It's all there in that supplement. You can read it and see where I'm coming from. I'm just going to tell you what's what. So centuries of debate, controversies are settled in an instant. Here we go. All throughout verses 11 through 24, Paul has implied that Israel would one day experience a great spiritual revival, a revival that would extend far beyond the the present bounds of just this faithful remnant, which means, I'm, I'm saying that because that means verse 25 isn't this bolt out of the blue, right? So Israel's transgression and loss was contrasted with Israel's full inclusion in verse 12. Full inclusion. Israel's rejection was contrasted with Israel's acceptance in verse 15. And the broken off branches in verse 20 were contrasted with the hope that the natural branches would be grafted in again in verse 24. Now we come to this verse. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Beloved, God wants us to understand from his word that this this hardening of Israel, a hardening which has lasted almost 2,000 years, is not God's last word 
to his old covenant people. God wants us, all of us, to know that. He wants us to read our Bibles that way. And he wants us to live in its light and evangelize in its light. Uh, But Israel's uh, restoration or engrafting back into the people of God, that's going to happen on God's timeline. There's there's a process here. There's a, a surprising, a shocking, salvation historical sequence to this. So let's just lay this out step by step. God has first determined to save a certain number of Gentiles. How many Gentiles that may be, we have no idea. This could go on for millennia. Uh, For all any of us know, we could still be in the early church. People 15,000 years now can look back, oh, the early church back there in 2021. (laughs) I mean, it could could very well be. Uh, But only when the the numerical fullness is complete. When the full number of Gentiles have been saved, they've come into the people of God, will Israel's hardening be removed? Only then will Israel repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, and what that mystery is that Paul's talking about is God's unexpected salvation historical sequence. That's that's the mystery that's now been revealed. Gentiles now, Israel later in that final generation. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. That's the mystery. Paul is speaking, by the way, very importantly, of ethnic Israel in verse 26. So for the remainder of this sermon, and actually for the whole, all of the sermon, but for the remainder particularly, I want us to remove from our minds any notion of the present day state in the Middle East. Just get it out of your head. Uh, When Paul speaks of Israel in chapters 9 through 11, he's speaking about Jews, the biological descendants of Abraham. You can see this in the supplement. It's very clear. I make it there. But ethnic Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all ethnic Israel will be saved. Again, Paul's not saying... Every single Jew, without exception, will be saved. He's speaking more generally, I think, of the corporate entity of ethnic Jews as they exist in a particular point in time in the future. I I found Doug Moo's explanation of this very helpful. We, We sometimes use the word all to mean a large representative number, don't we? So we might say all the nation, the whole nation, was outraged by the incident. That doesn't mean every single last citizen, without exception, but a large representative number. Or we might say all the students, the whole school, went out to watch the game. Again, not every single student without exception, but a large representative number. Hear this. In verse 26... Paul's telling us that when the, when the full number of Gentiles comes into the kingdom of God, a number predetermined by God, there will then be a massive shift, a majority shift in Jewish outlook. And all Israel will be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Which, as we saw back in verse 15, is the trigger ushering in the climactic end of human history, the return of Jesus and the final resurrection.
Now, now listen carefully, loved ones. This is essential. This is, this is the takeaway. All right? We must not think, oh, what a glorious day in the distant future that will be. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, speed the day, and then get on with our workaday existence as if all this were just going to happen outside anything that we do because God is sovereign. As if God's sovereignty trumps all need of our being faithful in advancing this divine plan. Because we do have a part to play. Brothers and sisters, we need to start praying like this passage is true. We need to pray that God would accomplish what he has revealed to us in his word that he will accomplish. Do you you recall the, the intercessory prayer of the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 9? There he is. He's in exile. He's in Babylon. And Daniel becomes aware just how close it is to the end of the 70-year exile by reading the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesies in the power of the Holy Spirit that the exile will only last 70 years. So Daniel looks at his calendar. The 70 years is almost up. What does he do? Does he kick back in his Babylonian easy lazy boy and just wait for it to come? Just to wash over him. No, he doesn't do that. Far from resting and just waiting for God's promises to come true, he prays for its fulfillment. Daniel's behavior is a portrait of God's sovereignty and human responsibility working hand in hand. Never doubt it. Prayer is a means God uses to effect his ends. God is He is, you can guarantee it, he is going to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. And that, in turn, will stimulate Israel to envy and salvation blessing. And then comes the resurrection, the return of Jesus Christ. But just because the Bible says so, doesn't give us license to live life like Christian fatalists and just merely wait for it. We need to pray. And then we need to go out there and evangelize Gentiles and Jews. Personally, I mean, personally, I can't think of a better incentive to proclaim the gospel than expediting the return of Jesus Christ. Can you? I mean, what, what motivation that is? Sign me up. So, so maybe, friend, God is calling you to be a missionary in Bangladesh or Latin America or Eastern Europe or Japan. The full number of Gentiles must come in first. Matthew 24, 15. Jesus is predicting the future. He says the same thing. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Or maybe he's calling you to be faithful right here, where he's placed you in Toronto, the most cosmopolitan city in North America. The entire world, a lost world, has come to our doorstep and is continuing to come to our doorstep 100,000 people a year. Praise God. And much of the Jewish community in Toronto resides along Bathurst Street, right out front, right north of St. Clair, south of Lawrence. God has his elect in every nation, in every people group. God has his people, people who have yet to hear the message of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ and who have not yet believed. Maybe God's calling you to step up your game at work or in your apartment building 
or your condo, your street, by being more faithful to proclaim Jesus Christ to the lost. Whatever the case may be, we, we know this for certain, Jesus won't return before the full number of his people, Jews and Gentiles, have believed what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son for sin. So the next time, Christian, you pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, or the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, immediately ask yourself, what part am I playing to advance the coming of that glorious day? If all Christians were as faithful in evangelism as I am, would that day ever come? And now Paul quotes Old Testament scripture. Old Testament scripture where Israel's future salvation is confirmed. It's a composite quote. It's taken from the prophet Isaiah, uh, as well as an allusion to a text in Jeremiah teaching that the deliverer, that Jesus, will remove ungodliness from Israel in accordance with God's covenant promise. The deliverer, Jesus, will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So just in very simple language, Jesus will consummate his covenantal promises to ethnic Israel by taking away their sins. He will grant Israel salvation, the same salvation Paul was praying for back in chapter 10, verse 1. The same salvation that Israel rejected. That salvation that is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. A salvation rooted in God's unswerving faithfulness to his promise and election. Verse 28. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. And now we so clearly see the place these verses have in Paul's overall argument. The refusal of Israel to believe the gospel does not mean that God has relegated Israel to the rubbish heap of history. How could he do so? Since he has elected Israel, chapter 11, verse 2, and God's gifts and his call are irrevocable, verse 29. Not then for their own sake, but because of God's pledged word to the patriarchs, he will not annul Israel's election. Ah, there, see, there's the needed balance, New City. There's there's the biblical perspective that eludes so many Christians today, I fear. Yes, Jews are presently enemies of the gospel, but on the other hand, they are the chosen special people of God the natural descendants of the patriarchs with whom the covenantal promises were originally made. And God never goes back on his gifts or his call. Both are irrevocable. God did not lead Israel halfway down the covenantal path and then ditch them because of their unbelief. It's as Paul says in Romans 3.3. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. And then in verses 30 to 31, Paul explains just how God will manifest his grace to Israel. Again, notice the sequence of events. 
all of it sovereignly predetermined by God. Just as you Gentiles who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. Verse 31, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. See, human disobedience, divine mercy, that is the story of both Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles have received divine mercy now. The Jews will receive that same mercy at some point in the future when they are awakened by God's Holy Spirit to the realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The New Living Translation phrases this so well. And this is as an aside, as a plug. I would strongly encourage you. Uh, my pastoral encouragement would be try to read through your Bibles once a year and try it in a different translation each year. So it just, it just shakes you up. It wakes you up, you know. And this is how the, the NLT phrases this. Verse 30. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Now they are the rebels, and God's mercy has come to you, so that they too will share in God's mercy. For God has imprisoned everyone, both Jew and Gentile, in disobedience, so he could have mercy on everyone. Amen. So let me conclude now the same way that the Apostle Paul concludes this section. For 11 chapters... The apostle has been giving his comprehensive account of the gospel. Step by step, he's shown how God has revealed his way of putting sinners right with himself. Uh, How Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification. How we are united with Jesus in his death, his burial, his resurrection. How the Christian life is lived out, not under the law, but in the spirit. And how God plans to incorporate the fullness of Israel and of the Gentiles into his new community. Eleven chapters of this. Gentiles now, Israel later, in the final generation. So the comprehensive account that Paul is taking in here, he's taking in time and eternity. He's looking at history and eschatology, justification, sanctification, glorification. It's been all of it. And in verse 33, he stops. It's like he's out of breath and he falls flat on his face in adoration. He worships and fittingly concludes his sweeping description of God's sovereign plan of salvation for Jews and Gentiles, past, present, and future, with a doxology that expresses wonder and awe at what God is doing. And with this, we'll close. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we remember the Apostle Paul's words of Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. May this salvation mystery, Father, your unexpected salvation historical sequence, Gentiles now, Israel later in that final generation, 
May that salvation mystery be ever before our eyes as we seek to live as Gentile Christians in the context to which you've called us here in Toronto, in Canada. Our country's Jewish population is 400,000 souls. So spur us on, Lord, as Christian Gentiles to faithfully proclaim the gospel to our Jewish friends and neighbors, banish all evangelistic laziness and cowardice, banish all fear of political correctness through the truth of your word, the promises of your word. Give us hearts that love the gospel, Lord, and give us hearts that love Jews. Hearts that care for Jews. May our desire be the same as your desire, Heavenly Father. It is to see Jews saved through faith in the Messiah, your own dear Son, Jesus of Nazareth. We pray this in his name. Amen.